Tyler Cowen's book, Stubborn Attachments, outlines a framework that individuals can use to make decisions grounded in economic philosophy. In his previous books, Tyler examined recent economic history. Stubborn Attachments gives his perspective for navigating the future. Tyler is a professor of economics at George Mason University, and he's also the host of Conversations with Tyler, a podcast that includes guests such as Ethereum creator Vitalik Buterin, Stripe co-founder Patrick Collison, and Coinbase CTO Balaji Srinivasan. There are also many other fascinating guests who are not affiliated with software engineering, but nonetheless have deep perspectives on technology. Tyler blogs frequently at Marginal Revolution about all kinds of subjects. In this episode, Tyler describes his philosophy, and then we discuss how his philosophy relates to software engineering, podcasting, and economics. To find all 900 of our old episodes, including past episodes with writers, entrepreneurs, and venture capitalists, you can check out the Software Engineering Daily app in the iOS and Android app stores. Whether or not you are a software engineer, we have lots of content about technology and business and culture. In our app, you can become a paid subscriber and get ad-free episodes, or you can just use our free features. You can have conversations with other members in the Software Engineering Daily community. You can use our search engine to find episodes and related content, and you can listen to podcasts about software engineering. I hope you enjoy this episode with Tyler Cowen. Tyler Cowan, you are the author of Stubborn Attachments. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. So your previous three books were about the state of the world today and how we got to where we are and what might happen in the near future. Your newer book, Stubborn Attachments, describes a philosophy that you've been working on for around 20 years. It describes a framework for making decisions in today's world. Describe the philosophy you outline in Stubborn Attachments and how it relates to your previous books. Stubborn Attachments as a book is pro-economic growth. It's pro-capitalism. It argues that we do face ethical dilemmas in our world, but the only way we can possibly resolve those is to sustainably increase the pie for everyone over long time frames. So I think of the book as trying to integrate economics and philosophy and to provide some very basic fundamental answers to the key questions facing us. My other books tend to be more connected to current affairs or more anecdotal, or they have more proper nouns, you could say. This is a very abstract book. It's quite short, and I've been working on it very slowly for a long time. Before we talk about the ideas laid out in Stubborn Attachments, we should give the listeners some motivation. These are mostly software engineers who are listening to this. Why should engineers care about philosophy? Engineers care about the world surrounding them. So typically, an engineer is focused on a small task, but obviously engineers are smarter than the population at large and want to have a sense of how what they're doing fits into a bigger picture. I pretty often actually have engineers write me and they say like, oh, I want a more rewarding job. I want to do something that really helps the world. Why am I here? And I usually write them back and say, look, you're boosting economic growth. You're contributing to technological progress, the generation of new ideas. Uh, it's the other people who should be worried, not the engineers. So indirectly, you could think of this as a very pro-engineer work and uh, trying to put certain kinds of productive activity into a bigger picture. 
And I think it also can help us think about public policy. Especially in light of the fact how software is increasingly guiding the flow of ideas and it's influencing the thoughts of people, the emphasis on philosophy becomes more important because we have to think more deeply about how to shape informational flows rather than how to make a better steel beam, for example. So it becomes more important to think about philosophy. Software engineers are building these tools, but we don't control whether people use them for good or for evil. Do engineers actually have to think more deeply about how their tools are used, or are we just thinking about how to make better steel beams, and we're not really responsible if those steel beams are used in weaponry? No, I think we should all think more deeply about how our outputs are used. But right now, as you know, there's a big backlash against software most of all social media, but not only. But for the most part, I'm a big software defender. So people allege that software increases income inequality. Uh, There's some truth to that. Obviously, Mark Zuckerberg is a very wealthy man. But those parts of our economy that do boost economic growth, and of course, I would include software, in the longer run are doing a great deal for poverty alleviation. You just look at the spread of smartphones in Africa, say, and you get a much more favorable picture about software. If you poll Africans, well, how is software or social media influencing your politics? You know, they mostly give you positive answers. They'll say, well, we used to only hear propaganda. Now we can access foreign news. So I think a lot of Americans are just seeing a very small side of the whole picture and thinking bigger will have a much more positive impression of what's going on. Throughout your book, there is a metaphor called the Crusonia plant, which is a plant that automatically grows and it generates more output every period. You plant it one year, you don't have to water it, you don't have to tend to it, it simply grows each year, provides you with food, it gives you much more the next year. And this is your example of a free lunch. You define it as something that we can aspire to. And it's heretical in the sense that you are saying that there are things that maybe not they're, ex- they're not exactly free lunches, but they look very close to a free lunch in the economic sense. Why is this an important idea? I think good institutions, and in particular good companies, are the Crusonia plants of contemporary America. They're not easy to achieve, but they have a kind of self-sustaining momentum. They attract good people. Good people, in turn, keep the company good or make it better, and it keeps on producing value. So just the simple point that rather than merely moralizing, what we want to do to implement actual moral values we care about is basically to have more Crusonia plants. And usually entrepreneurs are the people who do that, sometimes governments, but actually I think the private sector does it much more. We could look at some examples of technology that might resemble a Crusonia plant, something like the smartphone or Amazon Web Services or Airbnb Are there any examples that come to mind that most resemble a Crusonia plant in your mind from the software world? Well, I think Google is maybe the clearest example. I think the social benefits of Google are probably higher than those of Facebook. Google, for the most part, makes people smarter. The company generates its own renown. That renown, in turn, causes more people to use Google. That gives them better data. Search has become much better over time. They fund ancillary products. They funded a lot of innovation in other areas. They've made YouTube way, way better. Uh, Driverless cars, whenever they come about, Google or now Alphabet will have had a hand in that. So of all the major tech companies, I think Google is the clearest example. 
engineers will appreciate your focus on the quantification of their philosophical estimation. So you encourage the readers to quantify their behaviors. And it's not necessarily like they're writing everything down on a chalkboard and they're trying to figure out the exact numerical calculations of every decision in their lives, but you do encourage this somewhat rigorous assessment of our decisions in terms of expected value. Why is expected value such an important concept for somebody who is aspiring to be more philosophically conscious? I find thinking in terms of probabilities very useful. Now, obviously, I know you often don't have a sense of what the right probabilities are. Most life problems are not like flipping a coin, but it forces you to figure out what are your assumptions, like upon what probability estimates might various choices depend, and you just have to put your thoughts into more rigorous categories. I think it's a very useful exercise, and for most major life choices, I would spend at least five minutes just try writing down probabilities and expected values. See what happens. At the end, you might decide you have no idea, but I think you'll come away from that exercise with better thoughts. Now, expected value can be applied to any kind of metric that we're looking at. We can maximize the expected value of dollars. We can maximize the expected value of dopamine that is going to be flowing through our system over the future. One metric that you talk about in the book is wealth plus, and wealth plus is maybe a metric you can tell me if I'm wrong, but a metric that guides us towards making these Crusonia plants. It's it's kind of a metric of like how close are we getting to producing more free lunches. So how does the wealth plus factor into your framework? Well, I would start with the concept of GDP, although it's highly imperfect. The countries with the higher GDPs per capita, they are for the most part the places you want to live, putting aside the question of oil. But GDP is itself imperfect. It doesn't count all of the value of the environment. Uh, It doesn't count the value of leisure time. So my idea of Wealth Plus is just to modify GDP to count all the things GDP should count. And if a society is healthy and sustainably growing in GDP, it will be somewhere like Canada, Australia, the United States, and a lot of other people in the world will want to live there. And it's a sign you're doing something right. So whether we decide to build our lives around maximizing wealth plus or maximizing dollars or maximizing dopamine, we do have to find a way of making expected value calculations in light of incomplete information. And, you know, most of the things that we would like to have information about, we have incomplete information about. How can we build expected value calculations when we have such incomplete information? Well, I think often we should be more epistemically modest. That is more willing to say, I don't know. If you think of political polarization as one of our problems today, we could actually help solve that problem a bit. If people were more modest, if they would sit down and try to calculate probabilities, realize what they do and do not know. So even when you walk away from the exercise concluding, I'm not sure, Uh, That's often one of the biggest gains. That makes it easier to, if not agree with other people, at least agree to disagree. And I like that modesty as a kind of hedge against some of the problems of academic philosophy, because you can go down this rabbit hole of you're looking at uh, the trolley problem or abortion or something, and you go down this really deep rabbit hole 
And sometimes you can find a shortcut and a way out of that and a way of making your philosophy more amenable to actually being used by people if you just take a shortcut, which you do in the book, which is like, we should have a common sense morality, we should have some basic human rights, we may not even need to have definitions for basic human rights, although that would be helpful, but we should at least just be modest and say, maybe the idea of human rights is kind of a stopgap that can prevent us from going too deep down the unifying theory expected value calculation. Yes, I would just say don't kill or torture innocent people. That's my idea of human rights. I'm not saying those are the only ones, but just as like a first approach to the problem, that will keep you away from a lot of trouble and a lot of mistakes, and it's the right thing to do. And then, you know, beyond that framework, try to maximize the sustainable growth of Wealth Plus. Some ethical questions are very hard to quantify, and we even if we're taking into account basic human rights. So if my phone needs a rare earth metal in order to vibrate properly, and that rare earth metal is being mined by child slave labor, and that's like the only realistic way that it's going to happen to be produced in the near future, maybe it would be more ethical for me to go without a smartphone. But then I would be less productive, and that could make me not affect as much change in the world. How do I confront this kind of question? Well, first, I'm not sure that's actually the case, that people are facing that particular dilemma. There's some child labor, but it's not slave labor, which to me is much worse. But I think the wrong is being done by those who are enslaving. And we buy plenty of things every day from all around the world. I don't think it's feasible to know where they all come from. So something should be done at the legal or regulatory level. But I wouldn't put you know, an epistemic responsibility on consumers to know about every foodstuff they eat or every piece of physical item they buy. I don't think that's doable. So I would say, you know, buy a smartphone. There still may be a problem we ought to address through the World Bank or through sanctions, but buy the phone. More generally speaking, whether we're talking about the question of whether to buy a smartphone or not, we can recognize that there is this deeper angle that we can take with our daily decisions. Maybe it's something like vegetarianism, or you talk about climate change in the book. We realize that there is a deeper assessment that we can make of all of our daily decisions in terms of how they affect this long-term expected value. And we could spend all day breaking down a decision into its component parts. This would obviously be unproductive. So we need some way of making trade-offs between having relatively fast decisions, but also taking into account our somewhat deliberate philosophy. Do you have any shortcuts or, or little hacks for making these kinds of trade-offs on, on a reasonably fast basis? Well, one simple rule is just to eat less meat. You don't have to be a complete vegetarian, but you will do the rest of the world a lot of good by curtailing meat consumption somewhat. And again, you don't have to give up meat entirely. But for a lot of problems, I think common sense morality, you know, be loyal to your family, cultivate good friends, work hard, save some, be an upstanding citizen who contributes to social capital. And I know we may understand somewhat different things by those recommendations, but just actually taking them seriously is a kind of lodestar. Again, you will avoid going wrong on so, so many issues where people ruin their lives or become addicted to drugs or, you know, betray those closest to them. And I'm a big fan of common sense morality. And then at the margin, 
you know, interject some more scientific reasoning, which will tell you, well, give some more to charity and eat less meat. And I think, you know, you'll come as close as you can to being a pretty good person. None of us are ever going to be perfect. And we can do that um, for these these things like vegetarianism or should we have a smartphone and we can evaluate things in terms of aversion to downside. But there's also always, when we're looking at our decision frameworks, the potential for uh, opportunity cost of upside in the future. And I know you're thinking a lot about this with the the focus on moonshots and deep concern for the distant future. There is an emphasis in the book about deep concern for the distant future. How does thinking about the distant future inform our personal day-to-day decisions? Well, I wrote another book called Complacent Class, and in that book I argued that many of us should at the margin take more risks and uh, maybe do more to start a company or do, you know, do more to educate yourself or be more daring. And uh, obviously that involves some cost for you, but it's a kind of experimentation and sometimes it pays off and it has a long-term return for the world. And that if you just like never move, never change jobs, sit at home, get your Amazon packages and your watch Netflix... I mean, it can be a good life, but it's a bit what I call complacent. And I think at the margin, we Americans have become too much like that. And we've lost a bit of our hungry edge, precisely because we've been fairly successful in the past. And by becoming less complacent, is that that's hand in hand with having a deep concern for the distant future? That's right. If you take risks in business, again, at the level of the societal aggregate in America, those risks are likely to pay off, even though most companies, of course, do not succeed. And that will give us a higher rate of economic growth and more new ideas and a much better future. Whereas if you look at Western Europe, where people are much more risk averse, you know, they're growing at one, one and a half percent, maybe two percent compared to our, you know, we hope two and a half percent. And over time, with compounding returns, that adds up to a big difference. America is already much wealthier, and that gap is likely to grow. And we do more good for the rest of the world. When we're deciding what to do with our lives, let's say that there is a fork in the road, and we can take one of two paths. And both of these paths have the exact same expected value in terms of wealth plus, but they seem to be remarkably different in the variance of the outcomes. The low variance route might be that we start a predictable business, like a software consultancy. And then a high variance route might be that we try to be like Elon Musk. We bet our life savings on starting an electric car company. So here we have consultancy with low risk and reliable return. We have an electric car company with high risk, but low probability of success. These two futures might calculate to the same expected value. So how do we come to a good decision? If they're the same expected value, I would say play it safe. But I think there are lots of cases where there's higher expected value but higher risk. And there I want to nudge people into taking the more risk. But of course, you want some possible return for that risk. Otherwise, don't do it. Would it benefit society as a whole if there was greater incentive for individuals to take their lives in a direction of a moonshot, of more high-risk directions with potentially low probability of success? Uh, Yes, but I I would want to be a little careful about what that means. It's not that everyone should try to be Elon Musk. What I think we need to do is invest in better means of finding talent. So the people who have the potential to be an Elon Musk 
but right now don't get the education or the opportunity so we can find and mobilize them and get a lot more innovators. And there's so much underexploited talent out there. Uh, I'm quite sure we can do that. We need more societal will to actually proceed. But that's how I would view it. Not that everyone should take this course. Is there a way that individuals can hedge their bets but still have a potential for this kind of dramatic success? Or are there certain bets that somebody in the world needs to make that just have an inherent unavoidable danger? Well, there are some ways of doing it from a hedged position. So, for instance, there have been academics with tenure who have innovated, say, with particular ideas and finance. But I don't think that's the dominant model. I think the dominant model is to be somewhat all in and put a lot of your own equity into the project and face a real risk of failure. And I think it will stay that way for a long time. Engineers in the United States have multiple hedges just built into their lives. So we have a durable skill set. We live in a country that forgives failure. We have a generous social safety net if worse comes to worse. Why aren't engineers taking more risks? Well, it depends who you count as an engineer. If you look at software engineers in the broad sense of the term, they may or may not have the formal training. Uh, they've started a lot of the major companies we now admire, you know, out in the Bay Area. So I would say engineers, broadly construed, have been among the major risk takers. Now, I get that Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have a master's degree in engineering, but surely he's a brilliant software engineer. Right. You have your own set of moonshots. You want to be, uh, quote, the economist who has most successfully used the Internet as a platform to foment broad enlightenment. And you also started a fellowship program called Emergent Ventures, which seeks to support risk takers. Describe how moonshots factor into your personal decisions. Uh, I view myself as being in a somewhat privileged position. I'm not wealthy compared to other people in the United States who are truly wealthy, but I have a secure position and a high income and no debt. So rather than you know sit on my behind, I've started a number of new projects an online education venue, which is totally free and open to the world. We get 6 million views a year. Emergent Ventures is a $4 million fund, mostly supporting young people trying to change their career trajectories, looking to support people who would never have any chance of applying to a major foundation and getting approval. We just made a grant to a fellow in Nigeria who is trying to build a software program to preserve endangered languages. Uh, we've literally wired money to a Nigerian bank account, but I feel quite good about that investment. And uh, we're taking some chances on some of those. I know we're going to fail, but I think we'll actually have more impact than some of the foundations with a lot more money. Some engineers might argue that rather than the risks of taking a moonshot, the most moral path is to work a job at a big tech company where you make a large predictable salary and you can give most of your income away to impactful nonprofits. So, for example, you're buying mosquito bed nets on a regular basis, and this is known as effective altruism. One appealing factor of effective altruism is maybe you have more reliable expected value calculations. You know that you're going to buy mosquito nets. These are going to save lives that have metrics behind the expected value of a life saved per, per mosquito net. How does the expected value of effective altruism compare to the expected value of moonshots? Well, I don't think it's either or. If you do moonshots and you succeed, uh, you can and should give some of that money away. 
my latest book, Stubborn Attachments, which we've been discussing, all of my revenue from that book goes to one very poor family in Ethiopia. And I'm also in regular touch with them. I try to, you know, coach a bit. And I think that's a better thing to do than if I had kept the money for myself. So I'm a big advocate of that approach. But you do it with your moonshots, too, not only with your steady job. That's true. And you confront the more general idea of redistribution in your book. So is there a more general framework for how we can value an investment in ourselves or in our own business in contrast to an investment that we might make distributed across less fortunate people? Well, I favor growth enhancing redistribution. So if you say give money to a family where the children might otherwise suffer from malnutrition, in the latter parts of their lives, they'll be much more productive. That's potentially a very high return. And I think that's often the investment we should make. At the societal level, of course, we do some of that. I think those are very good ideas. I'm less keen about redistribution for its own sake, just to like, you know, take down the wealthy and elevate the poor, unless it is in some way expanding capacities and opportunities. There is a emphasis on compounding in your book in terms of we should make decisions that are going to compound positively, more aggressively. But oftentimes I find, at least in my personal life, the things that sometimes have the highest rate of compounding are things that I would have never expected to have a high rate of compounding. Like I suddenly decide to eat at a restaurant and that restaurant is 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 really fantastic and it totally changes how I cook for myself. And then that makes me open my mind in other directions. Like now I'm listening to interesting cooking podcasts. How can people figure out the compounding rate of decisions in their lives that might affect them in subtle, unpredictable ways? Well, it's going to be context dependent. But one thing I've tried to do in my career is invest in forms of learning that will yield compound returns, like how to read better, how to write better. Those are not once and for all gains, but they keep on improving how you absorb information for the rest of your life. So to think not just in terms of the static But how can you learn to be a better learner? I think we, in general, underrate the returns to that kind of strategy. Your book is about seeking a philosophical framework that can help your readers. And historically, people might have turned to religion for this kind of framework. Engineers like myself are more likely to cobble together their own sort of philosophical framework. So we're more likely to take a bunch of different philosophies off the shelf and cobble them together rather than taking a large monolithic framework that might be provided by religion. In your book and on your podcast, you actually express some concern over the loss of religion. If we throw away religion, are we giving up something that we can't reclaim by just reading philosophy and cobbling together our own philosophy? That is my suspicion. I'm a big fan of both religion and philosophy. But one empirical regularity I observe is religious people have more children. And that's a form of growth. And it's also providing for more innovation in the future. And there's plenty of room in the United States to support more children. So I'm worried that as we secularize, birth rates are indeed falling. That will slow down our dynamic potential. Is it something about religion that allows us to have a better shorthand for making these judgments of of human rights or, or something like that? And it changes our priorities. Somehow it seems to stick with people more than a lot of the secular philosophies do. I'm not sure why that is. I wish we understood that better. 
But nonetheless, to me, it's striking how much of a greater power religion can have. And I say this as someone, I am not myself religious. Much of your book is about how an individual should govern their life, but you also touch on governmental policy. How does your philosophy extend to how governments should operate? I think there's a lot of evidence the system that has produced the greatest sustainable economic growth is capitalism. But that said, there are numerous things governments do to support that growth, obviously producing public goods and infrastructure. I think our government should spend more money to support research and basic science, for instance. Uh, I think in general, our government should just be more accountable and get its act together and think and act dynamically, which right now it's very far from doing. It's a total mess in Washington. I think there's hardly any area of government policy where we could not see massive improvement. Okay. Well, I wanted to give a framework for your philosophy because I have a potpourri of of other questions uh, to ask you around technology, culture, some of these other subjects that you tackle in your podcast and otherwise. So one is around this idea that a lot of the major tech companies have some central dictum. So they have a uh, an idea like Amazon being the world's most customer-centric company, where you have Y Combinator saying, we should all make something that people want. Do you think everybody should have something like this, where the tech companies have this kind of like pithy shorthand phrase that allows them to get aligned more quickly? Should individuals have this sort of thing? I think for companies, both mission and vision are highly important. And to spend a lot of time on those is, in general, a very good idea, often essential. Uh, For individuals, I actually believe the same holds. And I think also a lot of things companies or CEOs do, individuals should do more as well, like just have a personal coach. Uh, Maybe it's your spouse, but have something a bit more than that. And uh, to apply science and rigor and measurement and think systematically about what you're doing, uh, we underinvest in all of that at the individual level. Are there any of these particular tech company philosophies that accord most closely with what you lay out in Stubborn Attachments? Uh, you know, the book Stubborn Attachments is published with the company uh, Stripe, which is a payments company in San Francisco. And I think they have a very dynamic approach about wanting to make the world a better place through the Internet. And I felt a certain kinship with that. And I'm very happy to have published the book with them. Are there any, so I've I've listened to some interviews with uh, Patrick Collison from Stripe, and he's definitely a, a deep thinker, and he has, I get the sense that he has some unconventional philosophies that permeate the company, maybe things that he doesn't say explicitly, but are unconventional. Is there anything particularly unconventional about Stripe that you really admire? Well, unconventional is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, But I think just the notion that we should take science seriously and, you know, use that to go out there and do good. I don't at all speak for them, but that's like a general vibe I get. And I think it's very consistent with my book. Are there any particular benefits you get from publishing through a technology company versus publishing through a conventional publisher? Well, things happen so quickly at Stripe Press. So things that normally might take months at a typical publisher occur in days. Because a tech company often is used to being dynamic and getting things done quickly and being decisive. Uh, So for me, it was a very pleasant experience. And it is a big difference. Fewer layers of bureaucratization. What's your current perspective on the value and the utility of cryptocurrencies? It remains to be proven. 
I do think there's a good chance, but a below 50% chance, the blockchain in some more distant future is transformative, helping us to do some kind of smart contracts. But I don't think it's around the corner. And I think they're going to come in for further very heavy PR knocks. And there is a lot of, you know, fraud that goes on in that space. And, uh, you know, maybe the lower prices will be good for separating out some of the fraud and really forcing people to focus on the potential substance. What could Paul Krugman and Vitalik Buterin learn from each other? Well, Paul Krugman has been a huge skeptic about cryptocurrencies and blockchain. I think his knowledge of the actual technical details of what might be possible could be improved through a conversation with Vitalik. So that's what Paul could learn from Vitalik. Vitalik already, though he doesn't have formal training, he has actually an immense and pretty phenomenal understanding of economics, but still on areas like regional economics, urban economics, trade theory, Paul Krugman does know much more, and Vitalik could, I'm sure, learn a lot from Paul. You have uh, made a goal of your life to be a more effective learner. Vitalik strikes me as somebody who is uniquely good at taking advantage of technology, taking advantage of ways of talking to people that have allowed him to learn at a really rapid pace. Is there anything you've learned about the the learning function of Vitalik Buterin that you've been able to apply to your own life? Well, you asked me before about mission and vision. And for purity of mission and vision and dedication to those and a kind of sheer forthright honesty, Vitalik, to me, is one of the most admirable figures out there. And I view him almost as a kind of saint. And I just, you know, the one day I spent with him, I learned a tremendous amount, not only about crypto and particular topics, but just about how he is and how he has done what he has done. So I think uh, many people could learn a great deal from him. He does seem to have an ability to combine economics with so many other areas of his life, of computer science, of mathematics, of gaming, perhaps. I get the sense that games were tremendously influential on him in a, in a positive way. Have you found any benefits to, to gaming in your life? Have you ever played many board games or card games and found them applicable to your life? Well, I was a chess prodigy from ages 10 to 15, when I was, I think, 15, I was champion of the state of New Jersey, not for my age group, but like champion of the whole state. So games had a huge influence on me. They're great for teaching you, you know, to confess when you're wrong and to be results oriented and to be rational about your own failings and to try to learn how to learn because the results are clear and you get your butt kicked if you don't make progress. Right. I think it's some of the best teaching and we are still underrating the value of gamification in many things, including talent search. Chess is a game where you have, quote-unquote, complete information in the sense of the board, but humans cannot actually calculate the entire decision tree there, So, and they also can't know what's going on in the mind of their opponent. So there is a sense, to me at least, that for the purposes of a human-to-human chess game, it actually is an incomplete information game. So you agree with that thesis? Yes, you need both calculation and and intuition, but between good players, it's often intuition that makes the real difference. Have you ever been tempted to to try out a game where the incomplete information element is more explicit, like a a poker-style game? Well, I've played poker. You know, I tend to be pretty busy with my own moonshots, so right now... uh, I don't have time for much time for games in the narrower sense. I wish I did, actually, if only, only to get a better 
sense of learning how the world is working today. So computer games and video games, I don't spend time with, but I wish I could. Was there a sense in which you only need to really have experience with one incomplete or complete information game to have a framework for some of the basic rules of game theory, and then the whole world starts to effectively be something that you can frame as a game, and so you can just apply game theory kind of frameworks and and have the same kind of framework, whatever you developed as a chess prodigy, kind of in the in the chess gym, you can now apply that to your everyday life and still have that feeling of, of game theory and positive feedback. On games, the value of moving from zero to one, I think, is immense. But that said, I think there's still a high return moving from knowledge of, say, one game to five, but moving from five to 20, I suspect, is far more marginal. So I would say no more than one game, but don't go crazy with it. Keep it under control. We hit a golden age of TV several years back. There was this inflection point where we got to the point where there's too much good TV to watch it all. I learned in a recent podcast interview with you that you are actually not a listener of podcasts, but do you think we're at the golden age of podcasts yet where all the, the there's just so much good podcast content that we can't get to it all? I would say we're at a golden age, but not the peak. So I think there's a lot more room to run with podcasts. A lot of areas where good podcasts are just getting started. And uh, like the true golden age still lies ahead of us, maybe five, 10 years from now. Why do people listen to podcasts? I think the motives are multiple. To learn, first of all, simply to fill time, to soothe themselves, to relax, to have something to do at the gym or while on a commute, or as a kind of investment into their business. I think there are other motives we don't understand yet, because podcasts have been way more popular than almost anyone expected. That, to me, has to mean we don't understand the motives so well. David Foster Wallace said that the goal of an author is to make the reader feel less alone. Should podcasters orient themselves towards a similar goal? Well, I think they already do. So somehow the kind of voice a podcaster has, the pace at which it happens, it all seems quite important. And what people get out of a podcast is probably very different from what the interviewer and speaker think they're putting into it. How important are podcasts for teaching us exemplary forms of conversation? I think it's remarkable. I mean, what I know about podcasts, because I do listen to some when I prep for my own interviews, it's remarkable how much better the conversation is in podcasts than on social media. There's not too much of people shouting at each other or being intolerant or refusing to listen or give ground or insulting each other. So uh, to me, that's pretty phenomenal. We've achieved that, and it wasn't like really even planned. Is there a way that we can evangelize podcast-like discourse for more areas of life? Like, is there a way to make Thanksgiving feel more like a podcast-style conversation? I hope if people listen to your podcast or mine called Conversations with Tyler, uh, that they will learn this on their own. I don't think preaching to people will make them do it. So leading by example, which, you know, the podcasters amongst us are doing, I don't think we know yet this is working, but at the very least, if it like keeps us at a draw when compared to other forms of social media, that to me would be a big plus. Someone that I know has a dinner party rule where the conversation across the entire table has to engage in the same subject at any given time, and this prevents the dinner party from from devolving into strongly disjoint conversations. 
Are there any dinner party conversation rules that are worth the hassle? Oh, I'm a big fan of these. So just size of the group. I think more than six is very hard to manage well. Then perhaps you need to split it into multiple conversations, but you want to split it the right way. Having a firm but subtle moderator, uh, even if that person is not designated as such, is of high value. So most conversations are bad. We need to start by acknowledging that and then trying to make more of them good. Like, why bother with the bad ones? If I have the option to meditate for 30 minutes or listen to a podcast for 30 minutes, how should I evaluate the expected value of that decision? Uh, many people are big fans of meditation. I have never done it much. I've tried it. I didn't find it rewarding. I suspect there's a lot of heterogeneity there. But I guess at the margin, my vote has to be for the podcast. I think I'm too restless for meditation. If you had to choose one major tech company to be a kind of emotional scapegoat for the public consciousness, and we would break up this scapegoat tech company in order to relieve the global tension around technology, which one would you choose? Well, I don't want to break up any of them. So I guess I'd pick like a small insignificant one. It's pretty clear to me that scapegoat has become Facebook. You know, the other tech companies do things with your information, and it often doesn't bother people. I mean, it's striking to me, you can go on Amazon and buy Mein Kampf, which of course, it's a Nazi work, and no one minds. And then you have someone saying something Nazi-like on another social platform, and people go crazy. It's not even close to consistent. So uh, I think we all ought to just calm down a bit, recognize that bad ideas have been around for a long time, and blame these platforms less in general. Are tech companies making deliberate choices today to seem less powerful so that they don't become that kind of scapegoat? Well, I hope they are. I mean, I don't have the inside look that would tell me what's deliberate and what's not, but I think they realize they have pending legal and regulatory problems. And as smart people, you know, I assume they're somehow trying to deal with those. But once bad PR starts, it's very hard to get a handle on it. And I think we've seen significant slippage in the reputations of those companies over the last three, four years. You had Claire Lehman on your show, and she's a kind of representative of what some people would call the intellectual dark web, and uh, that this sometimes gets categorized as as like a political movement. But I think it's I think it's more about this kind of desire to have more free-flowing conversations. Do you have a sense for why the intellectual dark web is important or what it even represents? I'm never sure what that phrase means. I guess my view is I'm glad they're out there, but I don't feel I'm one of them. So they tend to be combative in a particular way against certain like intellectual opponents and to kind of ratchet up the emotion in that debate. And that's really not my style. I try to be more laid back and not engage with every terrible thing I think is going on out there and just try to like do something through my own example and just avoid the negative much more than they do. A lot of what they complain about, I, I agree with them. Again, I'm glad someone is there doing it, but I don't feel that like emotional kinship to them that I've got to go out there and complain about the same things. I really don't. In a way, I try to do the opposite. I've had conversations with people sometimes where they tell me this feels like a podcast and it makes me uncomfortable that you're talking to me like I'm in a podcast. Do you have 
different ways of having conversations with people, perhaps when you're just getting coffee with them that like, is getting coffee with Tyler Cowen the same as a conversation with Tyler, Tyler Cowen? I mean, it's not exactly the same, but I think it's surprising how few modes I have. So it's not that different either. I tend to be like focused and analytical and informationally dense and try to press, you know, press as much content into a particular amount of time as I can, no matter what it is I'm doing. And I think maybe that, that's often hard for other people who know me, that I, I have so few modes. Uh, but there you go. And actually, I don't know how I could be any other way. Have you noticed any costs to that? Have you ever tried to like tone down the, the overt intellectual intensity and noticed any results from that, positive results? I don't think I've ever really tried, but of course there are costs. You become just like separated from a lot of other people, not in a hostile way, but maybe you end up in a kind of bubble where you mostly communicate with other people who are also also informationally dense and analytically substantive along a particular direction. And maybe that's not ideal. Yeah, I can understand where you're coming from. You interviewed Eric Schmidt recently, and that was a great interview. And one thing, Eric Schmidt and, and I think the other Google founders too, are so key to how our lives have developed and the degree to which they are key to how our lives have developed relative to the public appearances they make is perhaps like greater than anybody else that I can think of. It was this really good interview, but in all of his his answers, I felt he was incredibly restrained and he kind of has to be restrained because he's a diplomat of Google and Google is it's such an influential force on our mentality. How do you find what somebody like Eric Schmidt actually believes when he's somebody who just has to be so guarded? Eric, I don't know well, so I can't speak to him, but I would just say people in general, even compared to 10 years ago, they're so much more restrained in how they talk. And I think this is partly what intellectual dark web is rebelling against. And I agree, it's very much a bad thing, but I don't know how to get out of this equilibrium. You have litigation, you have public relations crises, you have social media, that twist particular statements out of context. I think we're in this to stay and we'll end up in this funny bimodal distribution where you'll have people like Donald Trump who will just kind of say whatever they want. And then you'll have people who are very restrained and not that much in between. I think that's unfortunate. You have people, uh, you know, I think, on, on that same spectrum like Nassim Taleb, who has been on your show. He has a proclivity to get into arguments on on the internet and uh yeah he's on the other side of the distribution with trump right right but actually what i found appealing about that is you know i read his books and sometimes they're a little too dense for me and they go a little bit too far down an analytical rabbit hole but when i see him on display actually arguing in meat space it's kind of useful to me because i sort of see examples of 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 his philosophies applied to the real world do you see like twitter or online communication as as perhaps being a useful means of sort of seeing strategies i guess intellectual strategies applied to intellectual combat it is but i also find it depressing because a lot of our elites when you look under the hood they're really quite biased and partisan and they end up showing that on twitter and in general, there's less respect for elites, like those are still smart people who know a lot. And I worry that elites are somewhat disgracing themselves just by being themselves and by being authentic. And uh, 
it's like Wizard of Oz when they pull away the curtain. I don't actually think that's useful. I think it's a cost of social media such as Twitter. Have you learned anything from Nassim Taleb's online arguments that you did not learn from reading his books? His online arguments are very often about different sets of issues. So like I've absorbed information about other things, and I've certainly gotten a much better sense of what he is like. But I would stress that Talib in person is not at all like Talib online. And most people don't know this. Uh, he's an extremely polite and genteel individual when you're with him. And uh, there are kind of these multiple Talibs. I don't know how to put it all together. But he's super nice is what I would want people to know. We've entered a world where people online can be present online in so many different ways. It's in some ways an evolution beyond the time where you had to read somebody's book in order to get a perspective on who they are and what they believe. Now it seems like you can read people. Like I can just spend a day online kind of reading Tyler Cowen and reading Tyler Cowen in a bunch of different lights, or maybe I'm watching videos of Tyler Cowen getting all these different flavors of what Tyler Cowen believes, or the same thing with Nassim Taleb or Ben Thompson or any of these online people. Do you find it useful to to read a person and try to ingest their sort of like global platform agnostic personality? Is that, I mean, because... Absolutely. Yeah. And for my own podcasts, like I'll study a person for a month. Right now I'm going through Sam Altman. Everything he's done, Sam Altman on YouTube, it's been great. Uh, He's super smart and he has a unique perspective. And I wouldn't get it unless I like tried to quote unquote read Sam Altman, the person, the Y Combinator guy. Yeah. And one thing I like about him is he seems in every interview you hear with him, he's he's really good at providing uh, firm, concrete perspectives on the world. And yet he simultaneously seems to have an agility to his ideas where he's very quickly able to adapt and evolve his philosophies over a short time horizon. And he's subtle in ways a lot of listeners don't pick up because he doesn't always articulate the problem he's thinking through when he gives his answer. And you've got to mentally reconstruct that. So as a figure, I think he's way underrated at the moment. He's certainly you know, famous as a CEO and venture capitalist, but as a thinker, he's considerably underrated. What other elements of his personality are underrated? Well, I've only met him once. Uh, He seemed very nice to me. I don't pretend to know what he's like, but he strikes me as a kind of explorer at heart. Recently on Twitter, I saw a photo of Antarctica. I don't know if he was quite saying he's there right now. I guess that's possible. That's consistent with my view of him as an explorer. And I think he'll go on to do other varied things with the rest of his life. He's still in his early 30s, right? Right. He understood when he took over Y Combinator from Paul Graham, he needed to reinvent the company. And that was a daring thing. I'm sure he did not in every way have a lot of support for that. It was completely the right decision. And that, to me, is one of the most impressive things about him. It was super bold because he basically forced the innovator's dilemma on the company far before it had any any pressures, competitive pressures, to, to deal with the innovator's dilemma. Yes. And I think maybe that's his most impressive achievement. If you were going to launch a Tyler Cowen digital assistant device like the Amazon Alexa or the Google Home, what would be your competitive differentiator? Like if somebody said, hey, Tyler, instead of, okay, Google or Alexa, what would your digital assistant do? It would be a blog and it would be called Marginal Revolution and it would never talk to you, but it would be there every day uh, whenever you wanted to visit. And it exists. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. Okay. So to revisit some of this, I, I think this. I don't like Alexa and Google Home Assistant and all that. You know, the privacy worries me. Even if you gave me one for free, I don't want it. I hope I can die without one. I'm afraid by the time I'm like 80 and I want to buy a new house, every home, it'll be built in. That's my worry. I'll n- I never want one of those things. And the better they get, the more I don't want it. That's so surprising to me because like when I'm going to bed, I can say, you know, hey, Alexa, what is existentialism? And I can sort of have this like opportunity if I'm just like still awake a little bit. Like I've gotten so much utility out of them. I mean, I agree with the privacy concern, but the utility versus the privacy makes it at least interesting to me. I feel Alexa should be asking me about existentialism, not vice versa. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> to revisit this idea of of reading people and absorbing the platform agnostic sense sensibilities of people, as you are doing that, do you start to get these kind of like avatars of people in your head? And then when something new happens to you or you're like at a restaurant, you kind of have these avatars of these people that you've studied in depth and you sort of can say like, what would this person think about this this Thai food or, or this new book that I'm reading? Do you start to like really absorb these people's perspectives and, and have them play off of each other in your head? I'm a big advocate of that. And for 30 years, I've taught my students. I call it the Phantom Tyler Cowan. You want to have the Phantom Tyler Cowan sitting on your shoulder, you know, the rest of your life when you're thinking about economics or maybe a few other things. And then I found out maybe two years ago, like Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen, they once had some kind of chat where they talked about exactly the same thing. But I think it's one of the best ways to learn is to develop these internal mental and emotional models of what other people would say with respect to what what choices you're facing or what thoughts you're having or what research paper you're writing. If we have phantoms, why do we need coaches? Your phantoms are imperfect. Over time, the phantom becomes more like your twisted vision of what the person was, and your phantom stops learning, and your coach understands you better all the time. So I'd say we need phantoms and coaches. We need phantom coaches and coached phantoms. (laughs) In contrast to phantoms, I think you have somebody like Ben Thompson who is, he's self-referential. So in in contrast with with like phantom are uh, you know boxing with phantoms you can box with your past self but the, i i feel like that can become a a deep rabbit hole have you tried to calibrate your degree of of self-referentiality uh you know 1997 tyler is one of my phantoms and while i think i'm optimistic he was much more optimistic to me he looks uncritically optimistic but he just had the sense things were going to go great for the whole world And in a way they have, but, you know, in a lot of politics, I feel I've seen a lot of worrying backsliding, and I have some major fears that I didn't have back then in the mid to late 90s. Of all the interviews you've done, is there one specific show that made you change your mind the most or the one that you have perhaps gone back to mentally the most? You know, my very first podcast was with Peter Thiel. Anytime I talk with Peter... That resonates with me for years. Jhumpa Lahiri was one of my favorite encounters. Just gave me a better sense of how to think about writing and literature. But I get a lot out of them all, really, or I wouldn't do it. And I you know, try to choose people pretty carefully. Uh, I'm not sure there's any case of someone I've regretted talking to. So, you know, I'm not getting paid, so I might as well make it something I want to do. Final question. Do you know what your next book is going to be about? I have a book coming out in April on big business, and it's a contrarian defense of big business in contemporary America that also has a lot on the tech companies. So I'm very excited about that. 
Well, I'm looking forward to it. Tyler, thank you for coming on the show and for producing such a great podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Wow. 